From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I made the decision that night was an ally. Night is your ally. Darkness is your friend. Every day, the sun rises, the earth lights up, and we can see the world around us. But every night, the sun sets, and we're enveloped in darkness. Yet even in the pitch black of night, when we're out in the middle of nowhere and feel like we can't see anything, if we look up, we can see the stars. The stars are there all the time. We just can't see them during the day. When the sun sets, it's not the world that changes. What changes is how we see the world. We suddenly see things we couldn't see before. Things we only encounter in the dark. You're listening to State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm your host, Zandra Clark. Each week, we explore a common human experience through personal stories. This week, seeing in the dark. We're hearing stories from people who were thrown into the dark and then discovered new ways to see. First, we've got the story of a boy who once had a special power to see things no one else could see. Then we'll climb up a Welsh mountain and into the illuminated darkness with mythologist Martin Shaw. After that, we'll head to an art classroom and hear how Lauren Youngsmith learned to see differently by drawing portraits. And finally, we'll travel to Oxford, England where Tom Skelton found himself, unexpectedly, in darkness. Our first story comes to us from a house in the San Francisco Bay Area. There's a storytelling open mic night going on, hosted by True Story, a group that brings friends together to share personal stories. The story we're about to hear is about a child who had a visual superpower, and then he lost it. It's told by a guy who wants to go by the name Guru Matt. Here's Matt. So this is, this is a story about forgetting. I always have considered myself a skeptic. And my mother, she is certainly a mystic. Uh, ever since... I can remember since the very beginning, first memories, I've been rebelling against her mysticism. This even went so far that my, my brother and I have been rebelling together. And he, he's even further out than, than I am in this rebellion in, in the fact that he recently uh, decided that he fell in love with a woman who happens to be an evangelical Christian GOP advocate. <laughs> And uh, they were married last year. Before the wedding, they had the shower. And at the shower, my brother made my mother promise that she would not tell his soon-to-be mother-in-law that uh, she had to leave the shower early because she was going to go read tarot tarot cards at a charity event. (laughs) So um, my mom reads tarot cards for a living. Well, as a, as a, it's a side job. Um, but she's been reading tarot cards. It's been like this point of, um, you know, slight embarrassment, but also like, you know, I've grown to appreciate it. Um, it always really surprised me that my mom always called me her little guru. This is sort of her story in a way, because the initial incident that created this story, I can't even remember. I was three. And she told me that when I was three, she said, how was your day? And, you know, she's cooking. (laughs) Mom, I think I'm an alien. Interesting. Why, why, do you, why do you think you're an alien? Well, Mom, I can see the eye in the middle of people's foreheads. 
Really? Yeah. Children, their eye, they, we, we all look at each other. We can see each other's eyes. And adults, usually their eyes are sleeping or, or they're dead. <laughs> what is... What does mommy's and daddy's eye look like? <laughs> well, your eye is very little, but you keep your eye wide open. And daddy's eye, his eye is very big, but he refuses to open it. <laughs> Honey, I don't, I don't think that's very strange at all. I don't think... And I, and I don't think you're an alien. I was three. Obviously, I don't remember that happening um, at all. And I grew up a little bit. I was five. And my mom, you know, she's cooking maybe. We, we cooked a lot together. And I always, like, you know, talked to her while we were cooking. I was really interested in, in, the, way, in, in the whole process of cooking. And she probably asked me when I was five, she said, so, do you remember telling me about when you were uh, a little younger and you thought you were an alien and you said you can see the eye in the middle of people's foreheads? And I said, yeah, I remember that, but I can't really do that anymore. I, I, I don't see that so much anymore. And it ended there. When I was seven or eight, she asked me again, do you remember that time we talked? Do you remember that time you told me you were an alien and you could see people's third eye? And I said, no. And I ran off to play. And then, I remember this part. I was just about to go into seventh grade. It was summertime. And we had a friend group. It was like the neighborhood kids, right? All different ages. We're all pretending to be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. yeah. I'm always, I always loved being Leonardo because Leon, Leonardo, Leonardo had the swords and Donatello had the staff. I always loved having the swords and I was the oldest, so I got to have the swords. And we seriously would pretend and just get really into being Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, fighting and like fighting all of the mutant, uh, all of like the Bebop and Rocksteady. And, and uh, you know, Splinter was our mentor and he was this imaginary character that we like looked up to. And one day I was watching us play and I stopped. I was like, this is all a bunch of bullshit. I didn't, I don't think I thought that in my head, but this is a bunch of bullshit. Like, what am I doing here? I'm a boy. I'm not a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Like, this is, this is really silly. And I started ridiculing the other kids. I was like, what are we doing? This is so stupid. And they just kept pretending and playing. And I think they even looked at me with a little bit of sadness. Like, he can't, he, he doesn't know how to pretend anymore. And, you know, I, I went off and um, I'm in seventh grade and, you know, like getting ready to like be a little bit older and play up, play with the big kids. And, you know, my mom, the way she describes this is she's like, you signed the contract. You agreed with the world that the world is a certain way and you're like fully engrossed in that world. You know, I probably around that same time. She, pro she asked me again, and I, I remember this really clearly. She's like, you know, you've always been my little guru. Why is that, Mom? How could I be your little guru? I'm so practical and skeptical. And she said, you know, there was this time when you were a really little boy, and you told me that you could see the eye, people's third eye. And I just was like, Mom, no, I didn't. That never happened. It could never have happened. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, I've talked to her. She's told me this story many times since then. And every time she tells me the story, 
I become a little more accepting of the story. You know, I think about it now. I'm 20, I'm 29, and she has no motivation to lie to me, <laughs> to, to, to have like fabricated this story out of nothing. And I think back to that 13-year-old self, and I hope that someday I can, I can see again. And sometimes I look, hoping that I can see. That story was performed by Guru Matt at a True Story event in the Bay Area. It was edited by Lemise Zarka and Sophia Palisa. You're listening to State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Zandra Clark. In this episode, we're exploring the stories of people who lost and regained sight in one way or another. In the last story, a boy tried to recover a special sight he had as a child. Many of us have had similar experiences. As we grow up, we often lose our sense of imagination. Belief is replaced with skepticism, and fantasies are supplanted by a more practical understanding of the world. But sometimes, we miss the way we saw the world as children, and we want to go back. Our next story is about two guys who found a way to see beyond what most of us see every day. They immerse themselves in darkness for days at a time in what they call dark retreats, restricting themselves from normal sight so that another kind of sight has to develop. And, as it so happens, they're both named Martin. Sophia Polisa brings us this story. If you think about it, most of the universe is dark. Uh, the womb is dark. The, we, we arise from darkness. <laughs> This is Martin Lowenthal. Martin spoke with us via Skype from his Center for Meditation and Retreat, the dedicated Life Institute in Newton, Massachusetts. Martin's been doing dark retreats for 20 years. I've been a Buddhist um, practitioner for more than 40 years. And many, many years ago, I'd heard about retreats in darkness from a Tibetan Lama that I'd gone to some teachings with. And that's the first I heard about it. And I became very interested in the whole idea of darkness and seeing and light. Dark retreats are a form of spiritual retreat that is often combined with meditation and that takes place in complete darkness. And they have a long tradition. In ancient times, Prophets used to retreat into caves to receive prophecies. The Greeks used to go into the darkness beneath the Temple of Apollo to see visions. Today, there's a wide range of resources for people interested in the experience. There's a yoga hostel that does dark retreats in Guatemala, lectures given at Harvard Medical School about them, and books and websites all dedicated to explaining to the layperson how to have the perfect experience while being totally immersed in darkness. For Martin, the experience is reflective and involves a lot of meditation, but it's also been incredibly creative for him. One year while I was in retreat, I just started writing poetry and wrote poem after poem. And that happened... That happens frequently in my retreats over the last 10, 12 years. And I've developed a way of writing in the dark. And so when I write a poem, I'll write it out, but I won't necessarily get the line breaks. That, that's the only thing I add afterward, but I don't edit them. This one's called Terrain of the Dark. Maps and eyesight are useless in the terrain of the dark. Only the perceptions of a sacred heart can behold the vast intimacy of this primal landscape. This is called the bath. My pleasure-loving skin delights in the caresses and embrace of the bath. 
I marvel that my body does not follow the water down the drain. For Martin Lowenthal, darkness and temporary blindness can become tools. Tools to tap into inner creativity or to find peace, respite from everyday life. If carefully directed and controlled, in darkness there is serenity and meditation. And eventually there can be answers to questions one goes into the dark retreat with. Martin Lodenthal conducts his dark retreats in his center. There's a special retreat room equipped with a bathroom and a bedroom that the participant gets to see before the lights get turned out. And when he goes into the darkness, he directs his experience. He focuses on creating a relaxed and disconnected environment from the stresses of everyday life. But what happens when you take another approach to this experience? Add another element to the darkness, like the wilderness. What happens when the immersion in darkness is less directed and more of a surrender? Night is your ally, darkness is your friend. This is Martin Shaw, another Martin. Martin Shaw is a visiting scholar at Stanford from Templeton College, Oxford, teaching a class on oral traditions and mythology. Specifically, he's very experienced in what he calls wilderness rites of passage. The idea that it's important sometimes to leave your community temporarily and spend time in deep reflection in the wilderness. Somewhere along the line, through his involvement in wilderness retreats, he heard about dark retreats, and he was curious. Stories, fairy tales, myths and folk- folklore, where there are often underworld descents, people find themselves literally without sight for long periods. In fact, in many stories, it is the first thing to go when someone has an experience where the life they were planning to have falls away, they find themselves in some kind of an emergency, and normally under the ground somewhere and what happens in the stories generally is another sense they have has to develop themselves it's a sense of smell it's a sense of touch it's something else martin didn't have any burning questions he wanted to resolve he wasn't trying to find peace on a specific issue and he wasn't looking for the darkness to help him tap into his creative energy like martin lowenthal so what could the darkness bring martin What could happen to him in the darkness? In his early 20s, Martin decided to try and find out. That would have been in the late 90s, uh, and it would have been in an area of Wales called Ponterwid, which is terribly difficult to find, I'm pleased to report. You you can barely Google it. Going back in time, remembering, uh, let me think it was spring, we've had to drag our equipment right up the air side of, uh, when I call it a mountain, to be fair, a Welsh mountain and an American mountain are not quite the same thing. In your eyes, let's call it a big hill. And he had to crawl up with all of his equipment. But luckily, Martin wasn't quite alone. He did have a group of people camped near him throughout the experience just in case of an emergency. So, you know, twice a day they'd call out, you know, you're still alive, you're in there, you're okay, and I'd say, yep, fine, or not. He was going to fast for two days and two nights, alone and in the dark, inside of this womb-like constructed shelter on the side of this Welsh mountain. So what I recall is a certain amount of anxiety. Um, I had my last meal. I remember being wrapped in a blanket. uh, And then to get into this small structure that was, as I said, absolutely laden down with blankets and black tarps and everything we'd had to drag up the side of the hill to get there, I kind of crawl into this tiny space. The space was so small, you couldn't even stand up in it. It was rather, you know, you were in a kind of crescent moon on the ground in the dirt, really. And it's pitch black and you can't see your hand in front of your face. And remembering, oh yeah, I signed up to do this thing. What is this? What I couldn't have anticipated was how comfortable it would feel. It was almost a relief to be in the dark. It is 
profoundly inward because actually something has been taken away. Rather than feeling expansive, you kind of contract. It wasn't a sense of uh, being sealed in and I couldn't hear anything else. I could hear weather. And actually what happened to me was uh, a few days into it, a tremendous storm descended. Um, and that was really, it was exquisite actually. If you like the sound of, you know, uh, rain on a tin roof, you could imagine it going on for hours and hours. I remember the strange experience about halfway through of something actually climbing over the small structure that I was in and scuttling off the other side. Um, and gradually, over time, falling into what I would call a reverie, which is a kind of a state where, as I said, your dreaming or your thoughts almost became luminous. I started to see images almost floating in the darkness. It was as if, if it was as if there was a kind of conveyor belt in front of me of various scenes, uh, which were dreamlike in nature. Martin says he tapped into a different kind of consciousness, something that exists only when we stop looking, when we are fully present, something he calls wildland dreaming. It happens when you've been out in the wilderness long enough to let go of your human concerns, both physical and emotional. Let go of the need to eat or the feeling of boredom. Let go of distracting thoughts and feelings. Basically, when you've let go of everyday things, enough to let other, less definable things in. Is when you, it is not you doing the dreaming anymore, you are getting dreamt. You're getting dreamt. And that's a big distinction. So it's not just you and your neurosis anymore, or you and your psychic world. It's actually something almost coming out of the ground itself. It wasn't as if I had some kind of enormous epiphany about the shape of my life and what it was going to become. And it interests me that most of the information that came in the terms of those visual images were things that were connected either to the earth or ultimately my work with it. A question that I came out of it with that to this day I don't have an answer to and I still reflect on is the fact that while I was in there, some of the things that I saw in the dark, then, at a later date in my life, played themselves out. And that I do not understand. And I don't know how that can be. Because like most people, my understanding of time is like a straight line. You know, I'm here and then I'll go back to England and that'll be in three weeks. So how can it be that by going into a dark place and sitting still, things that have not happened yet play themselves out in front of you. And interestingly, the things that I saw were fairly mundane. They weren't massively significant, but they happened. Can you share some of those earth images that you saw? No, no, I can't. I can't. I've I've given more than enough in terms of that. Some of this, you know, I mean, it's uh, disclosure. Uh, what I'm more interested in is encouraging people to think about that themselves. And it's still something Martin thinks about. I think I came out of it with a lot of questions about what happens to our sensing nature and our experience of consciousness and time when something as profound as sight is taken away. He was expecting something different, perhaps something more complete, more defined. I mean, really, if you want to know where this really comes from in my life, it's the fact that when I was a little boy, if my dad had a really a major issue to be thinking about, he'd leave the house at about 10 o'clock at night and I'd be up in my little bedroom and I'd hear the door close and he'd go out into the dark and he'd walk till often it seemed phenomenally late. It was probably one or two o'clock in the morning. And then he'd come back and often he'd had some sort of resolution about the problem. 
And so I went in, a, it's occurring to me now, I went in probably because since a young kid, I'd had this image that the darkness could help you unravel things that you probably couldn't in the daylight. Martin came out of his experience differently than his father. Martin's experience was more ambiguous, more bewildering. Yet in other ways, he also emerged from the darkness that not knowing, being able to see so much, just literally being able to see more clearly. When I crawled out finally, um, I think it was, it was almost too much for me to take. There was so much to see texturally and, uh, and seeing people, as I said, was overwhelming. Watching, seeing them smile and the preparation of food and the care. It, it, was, it was just an overwhelming feeling of coming back into human relations, really, and the relations of that place. I felt very grateful for having been there and being able to have this experience there. Whether through the creativity of Martin Lowenthal's poems or through the challenge of Martin Shaw's questions, we find clarity in re-entering. A clarity in the act of closing our eyes, if only to be able to experience reopening them later. I think when I came out, it wasn't light per se, it was the glittering of the dew on the, the leaves, it was the detail of everything. Uh, yeah, it was euphoric. You just heard from Martin Shaw and Martin Lowenthal. Their story was produced by Sophia Polisa, featuring music composed by John Hollywood. This is State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Zandra Clark. Today's show is Seeing in the Dark, what it means to give up sight in order to see something deeper. The Martins showed us that there may be something to be gained by depriving ourselves of sight. There's a special kind of inner sight that can come from a removal of outer sight. Thinking about it, one of the most common practices in meditation is closing eyes. Closing our eyes is a basic stress reliever and the most tried and true way to turn attention inward. But just because our eyes are closed, it doesn't mean we can't see. In fact, as both Martins showed us, we can see in darkness. We have dreams. Or sometimes, we get dreamt. But what about times when our eyes are open, the lights are on, and we get stuck in a pattern of seeing that we can't change? Sometimes we have one way of looking at something. Then that way of seeing becomes insufficient, but we can't think of any other way to see. We hit a wall. Lauren Youngsmith is a student and artist who hit this wall recently in her work. Darlene Franklin brings us this story. A warning that some of the language is graphic. In this story, we get a peek inside the head of a young, surrealist artist. Lauren Youngsmith is an illustrator, painter, DreamWorks animation intern, and a senior at Stanford. Her work depicts scenes of little humans unknowingly surrounded by smirking monsters whose bodies are too big to be noticed. They just blend in with a natural environment. Other illustrations show bodies in flux, half-robot, half-human, zombies, and humans morphing into mythical animals. This is the story of how Lauren grew as an artist by learning to see things more deeply than they appear. We'll start the story back when she was a kid. Most of her art was cartoons. And I think that I was always drawing, like, dragons and mermaids and stuff. (laughs) It's just like... (laughs) But... Probably a circle with some sticks coming out <laughs> for the head and the same ones that's smaller for the hand. I learned to draw the like the little mermaid tail. It was pretty bad. <laughs> Everyone just learns how to do line drawings. As Lauren got older, it became clear to her and to her teachers that she was fascinated with bodies. When I was in lower school we did sculpture, we did clay sculptures for a while and like I made a mermaid and it was like totally better than everyone else's. <laughs> I thought at the time, but it was like a mermaid that was like topless because I was like mermaids, like they don't have clothes. They like live in the ocean or whatever. And I got in so much trouble for my teacher. She was like, you need to change that. And I was like, why? And she wouldn't like explain it to me. So Lauren kept on drawing naked people. She took classes. She got better. She became a pretty accomplished cartoonist. She had the ability to quickly characterize 
anyone she saw as visually striking. I think drawing the human form is really fun and informative and evocative and something that people can always relate to, so I've just always done it. But by the time her freshman year of college had come around, she had hit a wall. She felt like she wasn't drawing as accurately or as well as she wanted to be drawing. I always thought I was a good artist because I could draw things and make them look like what they looked like. And it's really frustrating when you can't do that anymore. Lauren had always drawn the outlines of things, but she had stopped improving. So she enrolled in a figure drawing class at Stanford. There, her teacher told her to look beyond the outline. There are different schools of thought about this, but a lot of artists and instructors on the Stanford campus believe that to make an effective drawing, you're supposed to draw from the inside out. Here's Professor Ala Ebtekar, who taught a gesture drawing class winter quarter, telling his students the same thing that Lauren's teacher told her. And let's work from the inside out. So no outlines, let's keep it with the architecture of the body, where the leg is, the, the spine is, with the width of the charcoal, okay? Embody that. Can you do that? Like, feel it. If you're not feeling it, you can't draw it. Let's draw that. I think a lot of art teachers' main job is trying to break habits because a lot of the times you don't learn the foundations of things when you when you're able to just do something and make it look good. So that was really, really good teaching for me to go back to the basics and be using like a thick thing to try to create a form and like not being able to do it, being frustrated and then realizing once I got it right that that was what I actually needed to start with and that it would make the drawing better ultimately. Lauren kept struggling to capture the impulsive gestures of the human models. One day, they didn't have a model in class. Her professor put a skeleton on the pedestal. He posed it. He said, this is your model. So I would do the skeleton and then just like fill in the imagined model around it just for fun. It just really helps to be able to think about what things are made of rather than what they look like. It gives you much a much more interesting composition or like ultimate piece when you've got like a see-through model, you can see the bones and stuff. This created an obsession with the innards of things. She started actually seeing and thinking inside out when she was drawing. She began imagining the interiors, skeletons of everything. I just liked this cool idea of there being the human system inside of organic things. And I kind of just ran with it. I th was brainstorming for a uh, animation. I was using the song Cherry by Rat Attack because I just want, I always start with the song that I want to use. She has a bonometer thing that she can see everyone's bones with and then see pears and butterflies all have bones. Everything has bones except for the girl. And then she meets this guy who comes out of the tree, the sack in the tree in the end, and he has bones. And he gives her a mask, a bone mask, and then they explode. <laughs> I guess it goes back to you guys asking why I'm interested in the human body. It's just something that is infinitely interesting. If you impose like the human body structure system onto things that don't have it, it just is it's an interesting idea to me. I'm sure subconsciously some of it came from having paid attention to outsides and insides for so long. Lauren recently visited a class where med students study human cadavers that have been dissected. She checked out a body that her friend was assigned to study. She saw all the parts that make up a human body. It's totally crazy. <laughs> it's like completely insane to walk into a room full of body bags. Lauren's friend unzipped one. Everything is like cut up and dissected and in pieces and all over the place. So it doesn't feel like looking at a human anymore. So I was just like drawing texture, like details. I don't know, she'd pick up an arm and pull the tendon and it would like move. And then they have Tupperware on these shelves with just like sections of the body. And she just pulled one out and was like, I could not figure out what this was for so long. And then she like flipped around and was like, finally got it. I was like, what? That's a butthole. <laughs> Literally, can you imagine just sitting there like turning this hunk of meat around being like, what the heck is this? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see. I mean, you couldn't tell what it was, you know, cause I was just doing like hatch marks. It's really just looks like chicken meat. I can't describe it any other way. Um, maybe that's why it's so strange cause it just 
it looks like something so familiar. And it's just really strange to think about the materiality of everyone around you. Lauren so wanted to see the insides of the human body. She had spent the past few years since that figure drawing class, imagining unseen insides. But when she tried to use the exposed bodies as the framework to draw a representation of their living forms, she couldn't. If you just got a pile of meat and bones, there's no real, there's no way to accurately represent the body that was, so there's no point. Um, it's gonna look like a pile of meat either way. We're all just meat, we're chicken meat. Lauren saw that the bodies were just fleshy, meaty, material parts when they were disassembled from the bones and undefined in space. She didn't see it as a body anymore. She tried to draw it, but she couldn't. She saw that without the riggings of a supportive structure, it didn't hold character, because there was something that those bodies didn't have, life. The animation could be about everything having like an underlying structure system, like a universal structure that you can't see. The inside-out view of seeing the world as intriguing, complex, gross, beautiful, and impulsive, like a person's bodily contained existence. This perspective can be seen in all of Lauren's art. And the more she is able to depict this and play with it, the better her art becomes. To be a good artist, to truly see, you have to see the unseen structures, both the anatomy and the life. I think it's just the most interesting thing that exists. People's bodies, they're like the only thing that we have, the only thing that's completely ours. They're all completely different and they depend on each other. And that's where like personalities are encapsulated, like nothing else really has like real personalities. So just by representing bodies, you're automatically like creating stories. That was Lauren Youngsmith and Ala Abtikar. The story was produced by Darlene Franklin and Rachel Hamburg, with original music composed by John Hollywood. This is State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Zandra Clark. Today, we're talking vision, and how we sometimes have to lose one kind of sight in order to gain another. For Lauren, and for Ala, Different ways of seeing can help produce different kinds of artwork. Looking at the body as an alive thing changed the way Lauren drew. Sometimes though, changing what we see, or don't see, isn't a choice. For Tom Skelton, it wasn't. Hello! Hello ladies and gentlemen. Hello! Right. This is Tom Skelton. He's a friend of mine from a town called Milton Keynes, about 45 miles northwest of London. Well, if you're going to do a program about blindness... Tom's got a story. Um, so it was the summer of 2009 when I was 20... <laughs> sorry, 21 and going on 22. And I was in Magdalen College Gardens. Magdalen is one of the 40-some colleges or houses within Oxford University. Tom had been a student at Oxford midway through his course of study but he'd recently needed to leave school. I wasn't doing very well as a person. He was trying to move on and start over by enrolling in a new school. He was set to begin at King's College in London in the fall. But until then, it was summertime. I was in Magdalen College Gardens with a, a girl and I had something in my left eye, like a ant or not an ant, a fly or something like that. And so I, uh, I tried to get it out of my left eye. And whilst I was trying to get it out with my left eye, I decided to look, look at her and see what she was doing because she was reading the paper. But her face was just a little bit blurry when I was looking at her, like pretty, pretty blurry. So I thought, oh, a bit weird, isn't it? And then I kept noticing again that there was just a bit of a blur in my right eye. Tom didn't think much of it. But the weird thing in his eye didn't go away, for days. So he went to get it checked out. The first doctor didn't see anything. He said, I can't see anything wrong with it. I'm going to send you to local optician. 
the optician didn't see anything either. So it was all quite weird. I definitely had, I definitely had something. They said, let's make an appointment at the Oxford Eye Hospital. They scheduled the appointment for September, a few months away. My right eye was still, you know, it was getting a bit worse, the blur in it, but I kind of thought, it's probably a cataract or something. It's very odd. Um, but I could still see fine because my left eye was completely fine. But by September, Tom started to get a bug-like blur in his left eye too. That made him do some thinking. He remembered that a few of his family members had what's called Labour's Hereditary Optic Neuropathy, and it is a mitochondrial genetic eye disease. Uh, it's passed on through the mother's side, so only women are carriers of it, and um, only men develop it. In most cases, at least. Basically, the optic nerve dies and central vision disappears. Central vision is what we use for major tasks, like seeing people's faces, driving, reading. Without it, we're severely sight impaired. Symptoms of labors had started to crop up in his family members who had it around age seven, so Tom figured he'd beaten the odds. But then he started doing some research. I was just checking on the computer and I thought, look, maybe it could be this. Maybe, I probably isn't, but I should just look it up again to make sure and then it was like it'll happen in the first eye over a period of about two or three months and you know the central vision will blur and start to go and then it'll happen in the second eye and I thought oh fuck fuck duck this is what it is when Tom finally went to the eye hospital for his appointment the results came back positive he had labor's disease which meant he would probably lose most of his sight in the next few years. He would have some peripheral vision, but everything in front of him would become a blur. It was a bit like, oh. I suppose I was a bit sad for all the stuff I wasn't going to see again. I suppose I was mainly just, just a bit annoyed. I realised I wouldn't be able to make eye contact with people anymore. And I was always told I was very good at making eye contact with people, and most people are quite bad at making eye contact, so I kind of thought, oh, that's a a bit rubbish. I can, I can still still do a decent impression of it, I hope. I hope I'm looking in the eyes right now. You are. No, good, good. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> For a number of weeks after receiving the diagnosis, Tom didn't tell anyone, not even his family. Uh, to acknowledge it, tell my friends or my family would be to acknowledge that it was truthfully happening. And one of the ways to prolong the illusion of it not happening or not necessarily definitely happening was to not tell people. And also, I don't know if it's a, if it's a case of admitting a weakness. You're having to ask for help. He was supposed to be moving to London and beginning the new course at King's College. But his failing vision made that tough. I was meant to be finding a house and moving in with my friends, and I just put no effort into that. Because I was basically thinking, uh, uh, I wasn't really thinking about how to move forward with it. Like, I didn't reply to, you know, emails and stuff from my friends saying, Tom, we've, we found this house, what do you think of this house? I was like, oh. Because I didn't want to tell anyone. But uh, equally, I couldn't, uh, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't read the emails very well to her. Uh, to keep up the pretense and I wasn't telling my parents why I wasn't uh you know I wasn't doing the reading for the course and of course I've been quite excited about previously and then kind of wandering around bumping into things and dropping a lot of glasses and uh stuff like that having made a decision to go to London and start a new life and then suddenly you know, having like seized control of my life in that way, to suddenly have it like smashed up like that. And then I felt like not in control of my life. Put yourself in Tom's shoes for a second. Tom had had to leave Oxford midway through his course, but he'd committed himself to getting his life back on track. He'd been getting ready for the program at King's College, excited to start over, when that plan was dashed to the ground. He couldn't begin at a new school if he couldn't see. Accepting that he would lose most of his sight turned out to be a long process for Tom. That process started when he was finally able to open up to his parents. So eventually, when they when I told them, that was all quite a, a liberator and a release because then they could um, then they took me down to London a bit for 
the university and you know, helped me decide to defer. I finally told all my friends, uh, which is a big relief as well. Uh, me and my friend Tom sent a, a long message to about uh, 16 other friends saying this had happened. Uh, one of the friends thought it was a joke, but uh, everyone else responded very good. Deciding to defer meant that Tom could stay in Oxford for longer, until he sorted everything out. And that meant he could continue with a hobby he'd taken up a few years back, improv. Ladies and gentlemen, now for the first suggestion, could I have from you uh, the title of a story? Tom was a member of the Oxford Imps, an improvised comedy group that performed weekly in a pub. That's how I met him. I performed with the group when I studied abroad in Oxford. No. <laughs> say, say, what, say something you can see. And it was as if I hadn't, despite not being able to read hardly at all, unless it was in like font 48 size or something, and... Uh, despite not, uh, what couldn't I do? Couldn't drive for four, so but not definitely not being able to drive. Yeah, not being able to be a footballer or you know see a mountain. I could still perform as well as I could before. If anything, I got slightly better for some reason. You adjust to each performer you're performing with, and I think other people maybe, you know, maybe don't do other things as well and so you have to adjust to them. That's a weakness that I have in performing, that I won't be able to see a mime as well or be able to see like subtleties on stage, but everyone has weaknesses. But I'm sure people get pretty, yeah, they must get a bit annoyed when I when I lump onto the stage and, uh, and, and define what they've been clearly doing is cooking. There's something like watering a flower or something like that. But I think I get away with it. Tom started to be okay with doing that, with trying to guess another actor's mime on stage, even when he knew he'd probably guess wrong the first time, and the second time, and maybe the third and fourth times. It didn't matter. He started to accept his condition, and the lack of control that went with it. That's what improv is about, after all, giving in to the chaos and celebrating failure. Mistakes are gifts. Improv is about saying yes and. It's about showing up without worrying about preparation. Not a bad perspective for Tom at the time. And as it turns out, if you take that mindset, blindness is kind of funny. And a fellow Oxford imp felt the same way. Hi. This is Dougie. I'm Dougie Walker and uh, I'm 25. I'm a philosopher and comedian <laughs> who works in a park. And in a strange coincidence of fate, Dougie is also... A bit blind. Or, you know, half blind. Like I said, a really strange coincidence of fate. It's a really rare uh, condition, Stargardt syndrome. A macular dystrophy caused by a buildup of vitamin A at the back of the eye. They think that it skips like five generations. But they, yeah, but it's quite common for sort of two siblings to have it. So me and my brother both, both have it. Dougie's older brother got diagnosed with it first. But Dougie didn't know at that time that it could happen to him too. It wasn't like seeing something and thinking, oh, I might have that. So I was just, you know, just sort of made fun of him. <laughs> um, which I suppose has a nice smack of hubris to it. Dougie got diagnosed with Stargardt's at age 17. But that didn't stop him from making jokes about it. I make quite a lot of jokes about it. I make quite a lot of jokes about most things. There was one moment the other day where um, in, in a scene you played someone who was blind and then and then at the end of the scene you said, it's okay because I'm partially sighted. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone laughed. And, and I wonder, like, where, where does that kind of humor come from? I just make jokes about it because it's, it's just a thing that's it's around me all the time and it's just something I make jokes about. You get some really funny questions. Uh, a good one is, uh, so what can't you see? Uh, to which, of course, the answer is, well, I don't know. <laughs> I can't see it. Um, people almost always ask, all oh, right, mm, so, you know, do you not need glasses then? And you're kind of, well, if I needed glasses, I'd have glasses. You know, it's not uh, you know, a miraculous piece of technology. Um, a friend of mine you know, she was asking, you know, see that sign over there? Can you read that? And can you tell what that is? And, you know, quite sensible questions, really. And then after all that, she um, 
she covered her mouth with her hand and said, so can you tell what I'm saying now? How, uh, uh, and I was utterly baffled. I had no idea uh, what she thought she meant, you know. <laughs> Tom gets some funny interactions with people too. I think actually being blind is uh, one of the positive aspects about it, genuinely, is that people are impressed if you do. <laughs> this is going to sound very, uh, are impressed if you achieve anything. Um, it's kind of nice because when your disability doesn't hinder you at all, then you're still getting more praise than the, than the normal people. You ate a cookie, Tom. Well done. You managed to eat all your dinner. Well done. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Sometimes I use humour to let them know that uh, that I haven't taken offence. So, um, so I work in a park, and uh, I was working with someone who normally works in a different park, but they were in there... Uh, they weren't quite sure what was going on. I was new, so I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And they said, oh, it's the blind leading the blind. And then they suddenly kind of realised what they'd said and kind of looked slightly kind of, uh, you know, they weren't sure if that was okay. And at that point, you just, you know, wow, the blind leading the partially sighted. And you laugh and they laugh and it's, you know, you kind of, they realise that actually it's fine and they, they kind of get on with it. For Dougie, humour plays into his everyday life and lessens the seriousness of his condition. Tom has taken comedy even farther. Once he accepted the fact that he was going to lose most of his vision, he decided, with some encouragement from another Oxford imp, to use humor to tell his story. If we can utilize this for comedy, then then it's turning it into an advantage rather than a rather than just something that would hinder me doing it. So he wrote a stand-up comedy act about being blind. I kind of locked myself in my room for about an hour and uh, just wrote down ideas. He worked on those initial ideas over the course of a year, performing his act for friends, getting feedback, and taking it to the comedy clubs. I asked him to perform it for a group of us Oxford imps. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, could you please put your hand up if you know anything about mitochondrial genetic eye diseases? Uh, I, I can't actually see if any of you have got your hands up because <laughs> I myself have a mitochondrial genetic eye disease. So I'm going to assume you're not a crowd full of ophthalmologists and tell you a little bit about mine. And, uh, so ladies and gentlemen, uh, my disease is called Labour's Hereditary Optic Neuropathy, or Labour's for short. And what it basically means is that I only have peripheral vision, I have no central vision. My central vision is a blur. So for example, your face is a blur, your face is a blur, your face is a blur, you have lovely arms and uh, so it goes on like that and it's a pretty it's pretty shit disease ladies and gentlemen. it's a pretty shit disease because only men can get it and only women can pass it on like AIDS <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so ladies and gentlemen, I hear you ask there must be advantages and disadvantages to having uh, this disease and, and there are there are many advantages like for example girls uh, previously used to think that I only like them for their faces or their or their bodies or, or their arms and now they think that I like them for their personality <laughs> And there are, there are other obvious advantages, ladies and gentlemen, like having the moral high ground. Say, say all your friends are over for a, for a weekend and you know, you've, you've had a good night out and then the, the night after, uh, you're like, how was, how was the night last night? Oh, I was trolleyed. Oh, I was smashed. Oh, I was fuck-jointed. Oh, man, I was blind drunk. No, you weren't. <laughs> Only I can be blind drunk. And yes, there's a moral high ground, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and also I get lots of cool names. You call me the blind prophet, uh, VIP, visually impaired person, or my personal favourite, partially sighted young cyclist hobbling oddly towards wobbling and tumbling. Or as I prefer it, psycho twat! <laughs> so if you see me later, just say psycho twat and I'll respond in kind. Uh, and so ladies and gentlemen, there, there, are, there, there must be disadvantages, I hear you say. And, and yes, there are, like, like I want to kill myself. <laughs> no, I'm going to be very well. Uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, also ladies and gentlemen, another disadvantage is that um, I can no longer see all the weird stuff that's happening on the street. And now my friends have to describe it for me. And it often goes a little bit like this. Oh, 
And, and finally, ladies and gentlemen, uh, finally, uh, because of uh, you know, not being able to make eye contact very well, uh, because I stare intensely at a lot of things, read stuff up close, a lot of people, especially bouncers, always think that I'm on drugs. And sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Goodbye. Yay. I think it could be a lot better, the stand-up routine, if it was a bit more emotionally open and painful about my own coming to terms with it at the moment i probably feel a bit more comfortable making like uh jokes about sex uh and blindness than uh the emotionally painful stuff but maybe that will come later tom knows not all of his story can be told through jokes but for now He's found that humor is a useful way to tell part of it. Dougie has used his eye condition as fodder for creative material too. I wrote a theater piece about it actually, um, like a, about a five minute monologue about the sort of, the inconsistency of your expectations of people being disabled, you know, like uh, demanding that people should look after you but demanding that they see you as a totally capable individual and how those two things are really incompatible and you sort of have to accept that you're not a completely capable individual. But I always end up thinking that actually it's not the thing I want to focus on. You know, I, I um, it's, it's a feature, uh, it's a feature of me, but it's, it's only one of many, you know. I think to most people who I meet, I'm more beard than partially sighted. So really, you know, I should be doing more stand-up comedy about having a beard than being partially sighted. How long is your beard, Ducky? How long? I don't know. It's probably, uh, when I stretch out, it's maybe an inch and a half off my face. I don't know. I've been growing it for six months. Six months of beard. Very impressive. <laughs> Both Tom and Ducky have adapted to a new way of seeing the world through their loss of sight, and humor has helped them along the way. They've both used their eye conditions as sources of humor, and have used humor and improv to ease the seriousness of being partially sighted. They know comedy isn't everything, but neither is partial sightedness. It's just one part of them. Yet Tom thinks that that one part of him may have actually done some good for him may have clarified his life in a way he didn't expect. It's probably made me less, uh, <laughs> less of a bastard, possibly. So I think it has brought me closer to certain friends a lot, and it's when you have like a narrowing of your life's choices, it can be, well, not as liberating as having <laughs> them all, but it, if, you, if you want to believe it's as liberating, then it can be. I think because I, was, I wasn't doing very well as a person, I felt, for a couple of years before my sight went. And I think I'm, I've been doing better since. It's just made things a bit uh, clearer, if I'm allowed to get away with such guff. <laughs> That was Tom Skelton and Dougie Walker. Their story was produced by me, Zandra Clark, and original music was composed by John Hollywood. You've been listening to State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. Today's show was Seeing in the Dark, how losing our sight can help us see anew. The way we see the world is malleable, and at any moment, we're only one light switch, one art class, one Welsh mountain away from disrupting the vision we know. Today's program was produced by Sophia Polisa and me, Zandra Clark, with help from Rachel Hamburg, Darlene Franklin, Lamise Zarka, Natasha Ruck, Christy Hartman, Charlie Mintz, Victoria Hurst, Josh Hoyt, Heidi Thorson, Nina Fouché, and Jonah Willingance. Featured in today's show were Guru Matt, Martin Lowenthal, Martin Shaw, Lauren Youngsmith, Ala Ebtekar, Tom Skelton, and Dougie Walker. Original music was composed by John Hollywood. 
For a complete list of music, visit storytelling.stanford.edu. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, and Bruce Braden. Remember that you can find this and every episode of State of the Human on iTunes. You can also download them and find out more about the Storytelling Project's live events, grants, and workshops at our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Look out next week for more stories about the state of the human. Until then, keep the lights off and your eyes open.